I'm uh, just going to encourage you to stay standing for the reading of God's Word as we get to 1 Timothy chapter 4. We're gonna, just going to continue on here, and we've got an interesting passage in front of us, but timely here. This is the Word of the Lord for this morning. Paul writes and says this, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith. by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God. And prayer. This is the word of the Lord for this morning. You can be seated. Good morning, faithful remnant. Good to see you this morning. If you have your Bibles, go to 1 Timothy chapter 4. That's where we're going to be. And uh, if you're following along with us uh, in your pajamas at home with the family, uh, we would invite you to turn as well to 1 Timothy chapter 4. We're going to continue in our verse-by-verse study of the book of First Timothy, which we're calling the dearest place on earth, because this is the dearest place on earth, um, when it's filled with God's people on the Lord's day. Amen? Amen? And so we've come to believe that, and we've seen Paul at work uh, trying to help the church understand there's a way to put the gospel on display most effectively, most accurately, and most beautifully for the world to see, not based on what the world will receive from us, but what God wants perceived out of the church. There's a way to be organized. There's a way to conduct ourselves. And so he makes a pivot here in chapter four, and we we go in an interesting direction. And so I'm just going to give it to you. Um, Title of the message this morning is Apostasy Awareness. Okay? Apostasy Awareness. And it's not like one of those uh, messages that you would think would come up after Christmas. You know? Um... This doesn't seem like a very happy message. Uh, I think it's a very informative message, though. And if we're honest, the issue of apostasy is probably one that's pretty close to home right now. Uh, In your homes, with your family, uh, in-house, lots of them. Some of them may be having the story of having walked away from the faith. I will say also that uh, 2021, all the rage has been apostasy and uh, has been talked about quite a bit. So actually, I feel this is quite at home. Isn't it so interesting? This was written so long ago, and yet it applies right now to where we are. Huh. That's funny. But this is just a book written by a bunch of guys trying to manipulate people. (laughs) Of course not. We believe this is God's word. We're not surprised, are we, church? Not surprised at all. Well, listen, the popular term for the category that this whole idea of apostasy falls into of our day is deconstruction, right? Spiritual deconstruction. And um, as 2021 has gone on, this whole term of deconstruction, it's, it's just gone viral. It's everywhere. Social media is talking about it. And there's this, um, there's this sensitivity about it, you know, because some Christians are coming in going, let's, let's, um, let's, let's tear apart this whole deconstruction. Let's deconstruct deconstruction 
right? And then people get sensitive about it because they're like, oh, there's some good things about deconstruction. So let me just get these things on the table right now. There are some good reasons to deconstruct. Can I give you one? You grew up holding bad unbiblical beliefs. You see they're unbiblical, you change them, and now you hold biblical beliefs. If you're doing that kind of constructing, deconstructing, amen. Okay? But that's not the kind of deconstructing that makes social media uh, posts go viral. It's not the kind of deconstruction that uh, news sites would want to pick up on and, and propagate for everybody to see. No, that's a different aspect of deconstruction called deconversion. And within the category of deconstruction is spiritual deconversion. And when we talk about apostasy, we're talking about the notion, the modern day notion of deconstruction, or excuse me, deconversion. The willful turning away from the truth of the Christian faith. Okay? So when I say deconversion, today's term, I'm meaning apostasy, the age old term. This willful turning away from the truth, once for all, delivered to the saints. People, maybe in your lives, maybe in the churches you've grown up in, maybe in our church, who at one time looked like the real thing, talked like the real thing, and then all of a the sudden they're no longer Christians. How do you explain that? Well, Paul's going to explain it today. Now, let me clarify something. I want to be really clear. If you are actually in Christ, you need to understand it is impossible to deconvert. Because you didn't get yourself in in the first place. It's bad man-centered theology that believes you did it. You, God did some of it, but then you got the ball hiked to you on the one yard line, and you had to get over the end zone line. That is bad theology. You did nothing. You contributed sin. That's what you brought. God did the rest of it, and he granted you the faith to believe. And it's so hard for us to get that. You can't deconvert if you're truly saved. The problem is we have a bunch of people that think they're saved when they're not saved. And they're brought into the church like they are saved. And then we freak out when they leave, like, what's happening to Christianity? Nothing. Nothing new. No, no one of Christ's sheep lost. One pastor said it well, the deconversion rate for Christians is 0%. And it will forever be that way. But so-called deconversion or apostasy, this is the point of Paul's message here, it's going to be present in the church, in the visible church, until Christ returns. Okay? What do I mean by visible church? I mean, this is the visible church, but this is not necessarily all the church. I love you guys. Most of us are the church. We know what the church is, right? Those who have turned from their sin, placed their faith in Jesus Christ is the evidence of that spiritual regeneration by the Holy Spirit, right? So, but, but, but not everyone who shows up in visible church is actually a Christian. So I'm saying invisible church, not the invisible church, which is those which will never deconvert, but in the visible church, there will always be apostates, there will always be deconversionists, and really, if you track it back, it goes back to Jesus' time. Did Jesus have that going on? Look at G John, John chapter 6. It's one of the most stunning things, you know? Uh, everybody that thinks pastors are a big deal, it always comes down to how many people do you have in your church, and yet, in the beginning of John chapter 6, Jesus has thousands upon thousands of people following him. He preaches some pretty rough stuff, and by the end, he has 12 following him. Oh, and by the way, he says this in John 6, 64, that he knew those who would be uh, the ones who did not believe. He was very much aware of those who were not to believe. It existed in Jesus' time. It existed in Paul's time. 
And how sad for a minister of the gospel to go along with Demas, for example. Do you guys remember Demas? Fellow worker in the gospel. In Philemon 24, Paul is praising God for Demas. By 2 Timothy, he's having to report the very, very sad news that Demas fell in love with the world and fell away from his faith. It happened in Jesus' time, it happened in Paul's time, and it exists in our day. And what's weird about our day today is that deconverting is in. It is what's trending. So if you're interested in a platform, a way to get on the Oprah Winfrey network, to get you some followers on TikTok, jump into the deconversionist thing, you know? We're watching Christian artists and shocked that they're deconverting. And pastors serving in the local church deconverting this year. And pastors' kids developing massive platforms, undermining everything that it seemed like they believed for so long. And it's intellectual, right? We're the dummies, they're the smart ones. But as the saying goes, what the heart wants, the mind justifies. And we went back in chapter one, and Paul already made this clear. It's often projected as it's intellectual, but lurking behind, this is the whole point of chapter one, especially when we were talking about verses 18 to 20, with Hymenaeus and Alexander, he, he goes to essentially give this truth that we discussed, that lurking behind or beneath the surface of an intellectual argument, <laughs> right? Because everyone says the reason why they're not Christians anymore is because of the age of the earth. They say they're not Christians anymore because of the reliability of the Bible. They say they're not Christians anymore for a number of reasons. The biblical sexual ethic we can't possibly agree to in this day. And yet, what's true is lurking behind the surface of whatever intellectual argument may come is a moral shift. That's what chapter 1 told us. And without the Spirit of God to teach, without the Spirit of God to protect these individuals, these folks, no surprise, some of them that are made up of this group, this group falls away. And what we have in chapter four is a return to the discussion of apostate false teachers. You sense that Paul is instructing us in chapters one to three, but he's warning us by chapter four. He has a warning for the church that we would be mindful of some things, and he's giving it to us in this text. And so the big idea for the text today, for our message today, is church warning, beware of the influence of and effects of apostasy. Paul wants us to be warned. He wants us to be prepared. He wants us to be ready. He doesn't want us to be shocked when it happens. So he walks us through it pretty simply. We're going to talk about it from this perspective, the danger of apostasy. Then we're going to talk about the descent to apostasy. How does it happen? Then we're going to talk about the doctrine of apostasy, and then we'll finally finish with the defense against apostasy, okay? So let's talk about the danger of apostasy. That'll be our first point. It'll bring us into the text now, and it says this, now the Spirit expressly says, which is an interesting phrase, right? The Spirit says. It sounds very prophetic, doesn't it? Just has that ringing tone, Paul uses another phrase that's similar when he says, now the scripture says, 
But he's saying in here, now the Spirit says, and he's saying says in the present tense, in other words, implying this constantly abiding authority of what the Spirit says, which he will tell us in verse 1. In other words, what I think Paul is getting at right away for us to understand is a way to warn against apostasy is for him to convey to us that it is going to be an ongoing reality. Note it, church. Get it in your head. This is going to go down. He wants us to be, again, mindful of it. That way, when it happens, we're not taken off guard as if the Spirit didn't expressly say it would be an ever-present reality. Now, where did the Spirit say this? Well, we don't have an indication of exactly what Paul's referring to in this prophetic statement, but can we remember back to Paul's own words prophetically spoken over the church at Ephesus? Do you remember that? Acts chapter 20, he anticipates prophetically that fierce wolves were going to come in among them. Do you remember this? Not sparing the flock, men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Is Paul talking about that statement made? We don't know. Is he talking about Jude 18? Is he talking about 1 John 2, 19? There's a whole bunch of places in the Bible that speak of this reality. Here's Jude 18. It says, in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It's interesting because it says, now the Spirit, in verse 1 of 1 Timothy 4, now the Spirit, Holy Spirit, expressly says, ongoing, that in later times, interesting because in Jude 18, it says, in the last time, there will be scoffers, 1 Timothy 4 says, in later times, some will depart from the faith. He's using a phrase here that's similar to the one in Jude 18. It can be used comparatively as in later times, or it can even be okay to be used as last times superlatively, but both work and both are describing the period between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. If you follow the understanding of how this phrase is used in the New Testament, you see very quickly that when he says, in later times this will happen, he's talking about the time between Christ's first coming and between Christ's second coming. And just in case, to Stu's point earlier, you didn't get much sleep last night, we're right in the middle of those two points. So right now, in an ongoing way, here's what's going to happen. Some will depart from the faith. To be clear, this is not a struggling believer, okay? But it can manifest itself as a struggling believer. I'm just doubting. I'm just open to curiosity about the world. And it's like, okay, you kind of have to work through that mental gymnastics attempt there and be like, is he struggling or is that a Christian, a Christian worldview being substituted for a postmodern worldview? Some of that you're going to have to tease through, but I want to just at least make clear that someone, just because they're struggling as a believer, aren't necessarily in this category. Let me be very clear what the word means. Some will depart. It is a purposeful, deliberate departure from the faith, the content of the Christian faith. It is a willful abandonment. This is someone who was in and then remove themselves 
And then the words of 1 John 2, 19, showing that they were never really in to begin with. And here's what we have to understand and have to remember, and Paul's pressing us on today, saying it's going to be a present reality in the church. 1 John 2, 19 helps us. They went out from us, for they were never of us. For if they were of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out from us to show that they were never really of us. Guys, this is not unclear. This is prevalent. This is straightforward in the New Testament. The word depart there is actually also used by the Lord Jesus in the parable of the soils, interestingly, to describe the stony ground here. You remember it, right? Scatter some seed, falls on different grounds, the stony ground here. This is what's described of that one, that example. In Luke 8, 13, the ones who, when they hear the word, they receive it with joy. Guys, that's what's so disillusioning about this. And I've had the conversations with the parents who were like, I was there. He was praying on his knees to receive Christ. He was sobbing even. He was excited for a long time. He was the kid in the high school youth group, right, that was just so fired up. It's disillusioning. It, it is. When, when you see someone walk away like that, it's hard to even believe. It's hard to even talk someone into it. You don't even want to believe it. It could possibly be true. Not your kid. Not Johnny. Because he was in an accountability group. He took the Bible seriously. He went to Christian college. He was so excited about the Lord. No, not him. He has to be in a season. And maybe he is in a season the good news is, is whether he's in a season of waywardness or he's in the state of an apostate, the gospel is the same thing we preach and the same thing we seek to apply. But it says this, that the ones who, when they hear the word, they receive it with joy, but these have, listen to this, these have no root, Jesus says. The one who will depart from the faith, interestingly, these have no root. They believe for a while, here's another one of the disillusioning parts, a while is kind of like how long? The one that really freaks you out is the pastor that's been a pastor for 30 years and denies the faith. Like we just assume, we, we assume a little shoot up is going to be like, um, you know, um, summer camp went a little wild this year and I got a little into it and raised my hand for Jesus and was pretty fired up for 30 days. But, but there's other examples where that while ends up being a long while that these people have no root, they believe for a while and in time of testing they fall away, it says. By the way, that term fall away in Luke 8.13 is the exact same verb used here, some will depart from the faith. So what are we learning? Well, we're learning that this person, as they might profess this joy in Jesus, actually has no root. And what's the problem when you have no root? Well, it means you're not connected to a true life source. But you're going to even see it. And someone will say, you know, um, how do you know someone's saved? Well, you don't really know until the fruit shows it, right? But would we all agree that joy is one of the fruits? So it's a little bit confusing, isn't it? God holds fast his own. And he continually does it. He causes us to continually persevere. How will you know if you're ultimately a Christian? He will cause you to continually persevere. Fellow, fellow loved ones, this is a tragedy. 
this is unbelievable to some, that some turn like this. But Paul is telling us, don't be surprised. Be prepared instead. Know it's going to happen. And then Paul tells us how it's going to happen. So he moves from the danger of apostasy to the descent to apostasy. Number two is the descent to apostasy. How is this going to take place? He says, now this spirit expressly says that in later times, the time period between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus, some will depart from the faith. How, how is it going to take place? Well, it's right here. By devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. So here's the progression. They devote themselves to demonic doctrine. They have no spiritual root, no spiritual life. They're lured away by deceitful teachings of demons. A couple things that are really important to understand about some of the terminology going on here and Satan's general MO, Satan is an imitator. Uh, we have to get it out of our heads that it's going to look way, way, way different than Christianity because that's exactly the opposite of what's going on right here. Satan is an imitator, you guys. He is well aware the most effective lies are the ones that sound closest to the truth. So the message is going to sound remarkably similar. And the medium is going to look remarkably trustworthy. What do I mean by the medium? Well, he says through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. In other words, what I'm saying is the teaching of demons doesn't come with a guy with a pitchfork. <laughs> he comes looking like Mr. Rogers does. He comes looking like your pastor. He comes looking like a Christian seminary professor. He comes looking like a social media influencer for Jesus. He comes looking like the host of a religion and spirituality podcast that's super popular. Satan masquerades and brings ministers to do the work of the proclamation of this teaching. So the teaching is an imitation because he's a master manipulator, but then he puts it in a person who's really believable, maybe a little bit charismatic, compelling, great tweetable one-liners in 140 characters or less. Pictures are just like, oh, it's even better than what the Bible says about that. And there's a reason the human teachers are called insincere. That word insincerity there is the word for hypocrisy, <laughs> which is the word for actor. It's someone who's putting on a mask, putting on a show, but listen, they put that mask on and they look like the real thing. That's why it's so deceptive. Demons leverage hypocrites to propagate their content such that it's basically indistinguishable in message and medium from the real thing. And this is precisely why it's so deceitful. Because it sounds right, it looks right, so you put your antennas down and you add them to one of the people that you let influence you in your Christian faith. It's all safe here. There's nothing to worry about here. 
And then it's the perfect play of the enemy, right? Because then if you get a, 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 we'll call him a fundamentalist Christian that's just pretty dialed in on the scriptures. Okay, and we know fundamentalist Christians can sometimes be a little much. And they can push on some things that they shouldn't push on the way they push on them. But let's just go here that um, say someone that knows the scriptures and sees you a fan of someone who's not really actually teaching the scriptures and they call it out and they, I don't know, deem it what that untruth is, demonic teaching. The mentality for our day is to be like, oh, look at that fundamentalist again. Always so intense about everything. It is the perfect play of the enemy to allow it to keep going by because Christians are nice. Christians are nice people and it can't possibly be true because he's so harsh about it. This guy pretty much teaches the truth and he had a problem with one little thing and he's calling it demonic. Do you see how this works? (laughs) Again, let me just be clear. There is that fundamentalist person that we all are like, yeah, you're not helpful. Okay, so let's, let's make sure we acknowledge that. But let's also make sure we understand the magnitude of what Paul is saying. That when you have some guy who's teaching mostly truth, most unwitting Christians would be like, They're, but they mostly teach the Bible. Yeah. And when they don't, they slip in those untruths, those false teachings. I want you to be really clear. All false teaching is energized by the demonic realm, all of it. So it's not over the top. It's not over the top to say that. But it feels that way until we understand the word. It's right here for us, right? Now to describe these hypocritical liars, these insincere liars whom, who, who propagate this teaching, this demonic teaching, this false teaching, this anything that's not true as revealed in Scripture, Paul uses this metaphor. You kind of wonder, like sometimes you go, how could that pastor have done that for his whole life and not just experience the tremendous fear of God? You guys ever have a sense of the fear of God over your actions? Dear, please say yes. Okay, for sure, right? For sure I do. So in your mind, it doesn't make sense, right? Because you're a Christian, you're like, "Ah, I, I I can't see how they would do that. They've been walking with the Lord for so long. That's the thing. They haven't been. They haven't been. Their consciences have been seared. You know, the word seared there is where we get the word cauterized from. Their consciences, the nerves of their conscience, if we could say it like that, have been deadened, seared till they don't work anymore. This is exactly how people can teach lies and not fear God. Because they have seared consciences that open the door for them to hold sincerely demonic doctrine. Because it doesn't work like it used to. See, the conscience, loved ones, is like an alarm clock. First of all, you want to tune your conscience to the right time, which is the word of God, of course. But then the conscience sets off And the Christian, listen to me, if your conscience sets off in some way and you're seeking to tune it to the word of God, what do we do with that? Oh, follow it. Listen to it. 
figure out what's going on and what's being violated in that moment and receive it, right? The conscience is like a, an alarm clock. And so when, you, when it goes off and you get up and you get out of there, you're winning. But when the conscience goes off and next time, you're a little bit slower to react. Maybe like some of you this morning getting up for the 9 a.m. service, got here, but it's a little bit slower than last week. You know what I'm talking about? And then you go a little bit further, and next time your alarm goes off, you're hitting the snooze button, sleeping for a little bit before you respond. And then finally, before you know it, you're not even setting your alarm at all. That's exactly how the conscience slowly gets seared to not working anymore. You had it tuned to the word of God, used to respond to it as the word of God over time. You had it tuned to the word of God, but you know, your heart wanted something over here. You're like, ah, yeah, but I still know it's wrong, but uh, I kind of want to do it. And then eventually, right, it starts to work where now you're going, now I want an extended season over here. And then eventually you're like, you know what? I just don't even know if the Bible's really true. Please understand that the process of apostatizing is gradual, but it always seems very like, um, ah, it just happened. I don't know what it was, Pastor Scott. We went to bed a Christian, and, or this person was a Christian, got up in the next morning, wasn't a Christian anymore. That's not how it works. As a young pastor, I used to remember like people would you know, call, freaking out about some issue going on. Like, it's an emergency. You got to come right now. And my immediate thought was, I need to do exactly what they're saying. And then I realized over time, very few things are actual emergencies. Most things took you years to get where you are. And so the idea that I'm going to come and rescue you in 30 minutes out of things that took you 10 years to get into is foolish. So I'll call you in the morning and I'll be praying for you until then. And then we'll work on this. And by the way, it's going to take real work, I tell people in that scenario. And if it took you 10 years to get into it, expect minimal, it'll take 10 years to get out of it. That way you just set your gauges. If the Lord decides to do something miraculously quicker, praise God. But you got 10 years to figure that stuff out. This process is gradual. It starts with the heart wanting something sinful so bad that you're willing to cauterize your own conscience to get it. So you want it. You cauterize the conscience over time, then you shift the truth like goalposts to accommodate. This is so sick and so subtle, and it's happening all the time. It's even like, I, I saw this um, social media 2022 book challenge for Christians. Like, if you're really serious Christians, maybe you've heard, like, it's good to read outside of your tribe. I don't know if you've heard that language, if you understand where I'm getting to on that. Um, but this reading plan is the idea of this whole year, I want you to read everything that's outside of your tribe. You know, to really understand the world that you're living in. To really be able to reach people, I want you to, I want you to, I want you to read only that in 2022. <laughs> Friends, Satan's luring. Don't be enticed by that stuff. Don't be enticed by this nobility that non-Christians will take you more seriously and slip into something where before you know it, you're literally unreading your own faith for a year. We're not afraid of what untruth is, but feasting on that for an entire year, that's going to be a serious issue to the soul. 
So then Paul then addresses not only how apostasy takes place, but then he illustrates how it manifests itself too. And so we're going to look at that. That's the doctrine of apostasy. So he gives a couple examples that were likely going on in the church, which is why he mentions these two specific ones. But, you know, it's funny because after you think of him saying, they're, they're, they're insincere liars who come off as the real thing, who are teaching demonic doctrine, you would expect that demonic doctrine to be some horrible thing denouncing the Trinity or something, right? Or, or, or the deity of Christ or some big issue, right? We're expecting to see like, I mean, if this is demonic doctrine, it better be up there. Here's what they did. They forbid people to get married and they required abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So you expect this, instead you get what's here, which please, please, please let it remind you that false teachers present themselves as well-meaning, seriously spiritual Christians. Right, because we're talking about apostasy and we're talking about leaders who have apostatized who are now still in the church, still trying to teach this stuff, still trying to lure away others. And they're going to do it as well-meaning, seriously spiritual Christians, which will entice the eager, you know what I'm talking about, the eager Christian? It will entice the eager Christian that's just like, you know what, I just love the Lord. I don't know much about the faith yet. You know what, if you're telling me to do that stuff, I'll just do it because I, I, I don't want to disobey the Lord. The eager but the ignorant, eager Christian may easily be swept up in this. But this is also intriguing to the hyper-religious, those of us who just, the more rules, the merrier. You don't like to have any aspect of your life that's like not hemmed in by, I know I'm doing everything exactly by a rule. This also reveals how Satan works to deceive with a kernel of truth. He loves to work with a kernel of truth. That's all he needs. If you think about what's being asked of these people to do by these teachers, he's really, really close. These teachers are very, very close to a good thing, two good things. What are they? Singleness and fasting. Right? Forbidding marriage. What's the other option? Singleness. Singleness is a gift to some and something to glorify God in and for. Fasting, it's when you abstain from food, correct? Good spiritual discipline, yes? Absolutely it is. And so you've got two things that look awfully close to the truth, but here's the doctrine of apostasy. Here's how it goes on. Starts with the Bible. They take it. They twist it by, for example, making something a universal prohibition that's not. Take it, twist it, ignore it, attach a sense of spiritual, spirituality to it, elevated spirituality. I'll, I'll w- work it down. Take it, twist it, ignore and attach a sense of elevated spirituality to it. It always starts with the word, these people. It starts with the word. They take the word and they twist it like this. Forbidding marriage across the board. That's a problem, right? Because the word of God is clear. Bible's so clear. Proverbs 18, 22. He who finds a wife finds what is good. 
Mark 7, 19, Jesus declared all foods clean. But they take the word, they twist the word, they ignore the texts that say otherwise, make something, for example, a universal prohibition, and then they do this. They attach a sense of elevated spirituality to it. That's all it takes to have a demonic doctrine. Don't think demonic doctrines aren't built off of anything other than the word of God. They're 100% built off of the word of God. They are. Then they're twisted enough to make it sound like, oh, wow, that, that, that sounds like it would be a good choice. We forbid all drinking of alcohol across the board. Now, I'm not saying that's not a bad individual choice to make, but when you say that's the standard of Christianity, then you high-five the ones who are doing it, and you go, wow, that guy, check him out. No drinking at all? Wow. Never married? Incredible. What restraint? What self-control? Man, you are so spiritual. Wait, 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 wait. Did you hear it? Did you hear it? Did you miss what I just did? Who's the glory going to in that? I just got goosebumps when you said that, literally, and I already knew the answer. Seriously. The glory goes to the person and not to God. This is how this works. It's so subtle. It seems so right. It's so spiritual. It's so deep. What this is, is a form of legalism. Legalism, people throw this term around all the time, wrongly. It's trying to attain or maintain righteousness with God by human effort. This is not anything that's uncommon. Knowing about Jesus, knowing what Jesus has done for us, but relying on outward ritual, self-denial, standing all night so as not to sleep, eating salt in the middle of the summer, abstaining from drinking water because you love God that much, rolling around on glass in a subway in Mexico City in 2008 where I was a missionary and saw it happen. This is asceticism, which is just a form of legalism, which is just a form of the superiority of self-spirituality. That's what it is. It's defined by self. Things are added. Other things are ignored. It robs God of glory. It puts the glory on you and the focus on man. That's it. And anything that robs God of his glory, he, uh, he rightly deserves, is a false teaching. And so he goes on. He goes, you forbid marriage, these teachers. They require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth for everything God created by God is good. Don't call bad what God doesn't. It is not more spiritual to be more spiritual than God. <laughs> and it happens all the time. The amount of counseling, I don't forgive myself. I don't, I'm going to hold my tongue. Um, don't establish a higher authority for your forgiveness than the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. If that's not enough for you, nothing will ever be enough for you. That is not the working of God to give you that false sense of piety. That's the working of the enemy working against the cross of Jesus Christ. I don't love myself. That's funny. I don't see the Bible ever calling you to love yourself. It assumes you do. Whether you are 
way inflated or way self-deflated. It says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. No, it's not more spiritual, but be more spiritual than God. Because what that is, guys, is a pious rejection of the word of God is really what that is. It's so subtle. And he's saying it right here. I mean, here's the word of God for today. God's whole point in creating marriage, which was a good gift, and creating food, which is a good gift, was that he might get the glory. It's not about you. The gospel's not about you. It's about God and his goodness and his glory through Jesus. The Christian life is not about what you are able to endure. It's what God endured in your place through the person and work of Jesus for your sin. We aren't reconciled to God by our own efforts. We aren't kept by God in our own efforts, but by Jesus' finished work and efforts. And even worse, not only does it dilute from the gospel, but it just causes the glory of God to be pushed to the side, and we are not to rob God of his glory. He even says it here. It's interesting. He created these things to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Who are the ones that believe and know the truth? Christians. Christians. Real, true Christians. He created this stuff for us. Why? Well, it's interesting because Christians are the only ones able to respond with thankfulness from the heart to the giver of those gifts. You know what's impossible for an unbeliever to do? Have true thankfulness. No unbeliever has ever been truly thankful. Why? Because true thankfulness, according to this passage, wells up in praise to God and that they're unable to do. Romans chapter 1 says the problem of the unbelieving heart is they neither honor God nor give thanks to him. And I'm not saying that an unbeliever doesn't thank God. They might. But that thankfulness is not what brings glory to God. It's a type of thankfulness that roundabout, if you follow that train, goes right back to themselves. And so however you see this, doctrine that destroys gratitude to God and glory to God is doctrine that is demonic. And so he finishes with this, and he kind of just interestingly restates it, but it's kind of to defend against apostasy. So this last thing Paul does is he defends, number four, against apostasy, and he essentially repeats what he's already said. So it's like an order, because the untruth is so tough to wrestle with, he, he doubles down on it. And he wants, to hear, he wants the, the truth to be heard again and again. One of the ways to um, counteract apostasy is to repeat and repeat and repeat and repeat and repeat and repeat and repeat the truth. How do they train counterfeiters to figure out what counterfeit money is? Over and 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 over again, and then it's easy to tell what things aren't true. So Paul's just modeling this for us. Why? Well, he says it uh, in verse three, God created this stuff to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Then he literally says it again, for everything created by God is good. That's new, but implied and nothing is to be rejected if it was received with thanksgiving for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. He says it again. Did you hear him? Here's the defense against apostasy. It's right here. The problem with these teachers is that they deny the goodness of God and how he made things. 
And it's not just food, and it's not just marriage. These days, it's the sexual ethic. We don't like God's design. They deny the goodness of God. God's sexual ethic is good. It is denied. It is undermined. But to stay in the context of what he's talking about here, that which God has created is good, and it is to be received. And when it is received rightly, it is to be received to God's glory with thanksgiving. And then he says this, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. It is set apart for holy, acceptable use. I feel like that phrase is like tough to understand, but it's actually pretty straightforward. Um, Made holy. How is it made holy? By the word of God. In other words, the word of God says free game. So don't don't think it's like this. Like before we eat, you're making it cold. Yes, I know, but I'm blessing it so we can have it with the word. That's not it. But I'm telling you, that may sound funny, but I've heard some weird stuff. <laughs> Guys, it's in the Word. It's made holy by the Word, not you doing something with the Word. Okay? And prayer. What, what's the prayer part? That's when you say, thanks, God. Don't make this weird. Things God has created are good, and they're to be enjoyed Because the word of God says it's good. And when you pray, you thank him and you give him all the glory. So receive it and enjoy it to God's glory. Here's how you fight false teaching. You know the word. You acknowledge God's gifts as good. And you give God all the glory. How simple is that? Live a life that gives God all the glory. Live a life that you know the word. You understand it. Live a life where you can distinguish the difference between a good gift and what's not a good gift. It's interesting to talk about money later. And everyone's like, money, it's, it's bad, it's bad. It's the love of money that's bad. And then he literally goes on to say, it's to be enjoyed. So God wants to be glorified in that. Now, of course, we can overindulge in money for sure. But the issue is the love of money. God gives us good things that sometimes our consciences can get twisted up by false teaching and leads us away from the glory that God deserves for the things he created for his people to enjoy so that we would give him all the glory. And that's the simplicity of our lives as Christians. That's the simplicity of what we do. And so if anything, church, this is a call to know the word. This is a call to receive God's gifts is good. And this is a call in all those things to give the glory to him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the word. Thank you for just the privilege of getting to teach it, God. I am always blown away by what is there and so applicable, so accessible for us. I'm not surprised, Lord, just amazed again. You are so good. You are so faithful. Lord, you have a glorious gospel, good news that needs to get out to all people. It's not based on our efforts that makes us right with you. It's based on the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. 
We receive his work as a free gift. We receive that which you've created as a free gift. And we trust in Jesus saying, all glory be to you. We could not get ourselves to you. You came to us. We did not seek you. You sought us. We were sinners and you sent your son to die for sin. And now we're brought into your fold in a stunning way that we don't deserve, but we readily receive because you are stunningly good. And we thank you, Lord, for being so faithful, so kind. Make our church aware of these things, Lord. Give us a hunger to know the truth so we can distinguish between false teaching that sounds awfully close to the truth. And help us to be witnesses to our lost friends or maybe our quote-unquote deconverted family members or neighbors. Help us to remember that it's the gospel that needs to be applied either way, Lord. We'll trust you for the results in Jesus' name. Amen.